0: Listen, those who fear God. It was almost like a technical description back then. These were people who believed that there was a God, but weren't quite willing to commit themselves all the way to becoming Jewish proselytes. Now, part of their hesitation was the requirement of changing their lifestyles if they were to become proselytes, wearing funny clothes, leaving your beard untrimmed eating only certain foods, circumcision, and more. These things, they thought, that made one a Jew. But I think a large part of the problem might have been their willingness to dive into a belief system. Sure, they knew there was a God, you know, someone who created and cares for us, but the God of the Bible, they weren't quite sure at least not enough to dive into the Jewish religion. Or was that maybe the problem? (laughs) Was it the religion itself? Maybe they knew a lot of Jews who were more than willing to cheat and lie and steal. And worse, did they shy away from becoming a part of that bunch of hypocrites? Whatever the case then, we have a lot of God-fearers today. In one of the largest polls of the American people concerning religious beliefs ever taken... 92% 92% stated they believe in God or a universal spirit. 92%. But, catch this. One in five of those call themselves atheists. <laughs> uh, that's a complete contradiction in terms. <laughs> but would it be fair to say that they're just not quite sure what they believe? But they believe in God. They are God-fearers. But even those who do not call themselves atheists don't really know what they believe. 70% of those affiliated with a religion believe that many religions can lead to eternal salvation. Then why do you belong to the religion to which you do belong? Why do it? Jesus said he is the only way. So clearly, anything goes. It's just it's not biblical. It's not biblical Christianity. Now, maybe that those who were interviewed meant people can find Jesus even via a non-biblical belief structure which is true the way surveys are formed and the questions asked greatly affects the answers to say the least but we've all seen this phenomenon people who want to believe but can't quite commit themselves fully to Christ so are the God-fearers of our day anything like those of Paul's day I think you'll find some fascinating comparisons as we look at Paul's sermon when he and Barnabas reached the city of Antioch in Pisidia. So let's join them there. They went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the ruler of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen we'll discuss how the men of Israel fits into Paul's little sermon the next time we come into Acts but what does Paul think the God-fearers believe and does he think they'll embrace this new belief in Christ in introducing a belief to people it's wise to start with that which you know that you hold in common Paul does just that The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. Most God-fearers recognize that somehow the Jewish people are a part of God's plan and that he watches over them. Part of this is due to their history. Paul looked back at their time of suffering in Egypt. He points out that God both chose them and rescued them out of turmoil. We can point to their more recent history. They've all suffered extensively, particularly in World War II, and yet it seems God still continues to rescue them. We could then point out that God has another group of people, Christians, that he also chose and protects, but we might be getting ahead of the game. Remember, the goal is to introduce them to the truth that Jesus is the only way. It might be wiser to build up to the point, as Paul continues to do, and for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan gave them their land as an inheritance. God fear is recognized that people mess up. <laughs> that the first generation of Jews out of Egypt missed a wonderful chance to be the people of God in the land that he gave them is no surprise to anyone. That there were seven nations who were all so bad that God would destroy them is not particularly surprising to these people and at that time and in the way they were supposed to worship God land was absolutely necessary so that God would give it to them and permanently an inheritance is expected all this took about 450 years and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet those who fear God will generally understand that God has a plan that he is working and that that plan may take some time And also, they full well knew during the time of the judges things simply weren't right. Okay, they were dramatically wrong. But God finally sent Samuel who straightened out a lot of things. God-fearers generally believe that God sends people who set things right. So, Paul has talked about two generations. One missed it. The second carried out the plan. There were evil nations that were there. And then the Hebrews God brought in. And Paul opposed the evil times of the judges with the time of Samuel. It's important to point this out because of another pattern they recognize. The first time around, never seems to go right. <laughs> it seems God always uses a second way to get it right, or at least better. All builds on that shortly. For the moment, let's look at another pair. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Saul, from the same tribe as Paul, incidentally, gets his chance, but is removed. And in this juxtaposition, Paul finally makes his first direct quote of scripture. So before we get to Saul and David, let's look at this scripture thing. Most God-fearers recognize that it makes sense that God would communicate with his creatures, even that he would do so through people. So the idea of a written document or documents whose production is guided by God is acceptable to them the Bible is exclusively that writing or even such a writing at all is probably not clear to them. But that there is such a thing is acceptable to most God-fearers so we can quote the Bible to them as authoritative. Probably they will accept it or at least think it could be God's word. Paul has been alluding to the scriptures all along assuming their divine origin and hence accuracy. Now when he quotes from it he aims toward the central point of his argument. He quotes God as saying, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. The point is, there are historical characters that everyone knows sought after the true God. For them, David was the obvious example, and for many reasons he's still the best. But we can also mention others who truly believed and changed their lives and the world around them because of their belief like say Abraham Lincoln who quoted extensively from scriptures and grew mightily in his Christian faith throughout his life David though is important for another reason It relates to who he was and what he would do he was a man after God's own heart God-fearers believe that God means good for us so someone who sought after the heart of God would be one who sought after the good of others. God-fearers generally believe that the will of God will result in the best possible outcome. So anyone who does God's will is helping to bring the world to that point of change where all will be made right. Yes? David has both these things going for him. And if a person, like a God-fearer, recognizes this, they understand that logically, this means that this world is messed up. <laughs> I mean if you need the world to get better, obviously it's not right, which then means they recognize that the world once was right, but that mankind somehow messed it up. I and mean, Godsurers get this. they also know enough history to understand that mankind is not likely to correct the problems he has caused. <laughs> Who are we kidding? There's no chance he can correct these problems. Left alone, mankind is never going to get it right. So they know this world needs help to get out of this mess. And they expect that God will give us that help. It's a good thing. Almost certainly, they've not clearly thought this out. (laughs) In fact, if pressed, they could not articulate their beliefs. Couldn't tell you. They simply don't know what they believe. But the great good news is that they do believe that there is a Creator God who made everything right but gave it to people who messed it up and that this God will not leave us wallowing in our own filth. The only question is, in what form will that help take? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. The remainder of Paul's talk concerns Jesus. We can learn a lot from how he presents the Son of God. Even this sentence is packed with an amazing amount of doctrine. This man is David, a precursor, as we've mentioned before, of Christ. Israel needed a Savior, and God brought him to them. Obviously, there's a lot more to be learned in both of these areas. Is he a Savior for just Israel? By God, does Paul mean God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? All three persons of the Trinity? Paul wisely leaves all that aside. But he does point out that Jesus' coming fulfills the promise of God. Remember, God-fearers are convinced that God will make everything right. They probably don't know the exact scriptures, or even if there are scriptures that say so. But they believe in the promise anyway. They do have hope. So now Paul moves away from Christ, but into recent history to point them to Christ, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel and as John was finishing his course he said What do you suppose that I am? I am not he No, but behold after me one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie They all knew how great John the Baptist was He was a superstar of his time But as Paul points out John was careful to say He is not the promised one In fact, he is so incapable that he was not even worthy to do the lowest slave's job for his Savior and untie his shoes. God fears need to be told that no one but Jesus is worthy. John the Baptist was about as perfect as any mere human has ever been. And he said he wasn't good enough to untie Jesus' sandals. So when any religious leader says he is on a level with Jesus, somebody's lying. Muhammad said Jesus was another prophet just as Muhammad thought he was. Joseph Smith said Jesus messed up by letting himself get killed on the cross. They think the cross is a bad thing, which is why you never see one on or around their buildings. Joseph Smith said, oh, I'll get it right. (laughs) Charles Taz Russell, he's the progenitor of the Jehovah's Witness group, he believed himself to be a prophet just like Jesus. Guys like Sun Yung Moon, of course, don't think there was much special about Jesus at all. All these guys can say these things, but it matters not. (laughs) They lie when they say that they are at all worthy to stand in the presence of Jesus, let alone pretend that they are peers with him. If John the Baptist wouldn't begin to compare himself to Jesus, neither should they. And if someone says, Jesus was a great man, but so is... X. Ask them what happened the third day after they died. Oh, nothing. <laughs> then don't compare him to Jesus. And by the way, we we, you and me, we all know who John the Baptist we all know John the Baptist. Did you know that? We know him. Really? How about Billy Graham? <laughs> or Mother Teresa. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is now well known by many. Too. Those are names people recognize. Somewhere in every God-fearer's life is a person that they know or know of who is really great, but who will tell them in an instant, I'm not the one. I'm not even good enough to be a slave. A few, well, a few dozen years ago now, <laughs> Steve Largent was a major figure around here. I don't, know. I don't remember Steve Largent. And he said at his retirement party, you should look to be like me. You should try to be like Jesus. Almost all God fears have a relative that points them to Christ. A parent, a grandparent, or great grandparent, real common. An aunt, an uncle, maybe just a friend of the family. But there is someone in their lives that defies the norm and cares for others beyond themselves. And yet says, I'm not the one. And if we are the person talking about the promised one to them, then it would be good if we could identify who that person is in their life. It's probably okay to ask, don't you know someone who's a Christian and actually lives like it? (laughs) They'll know what you mean. Remember, they know we all mess up and they believe God has promised to fix things. There's also the possibility that we are John the Baptist for some people. We should be. Maybe we're the ones that some God-fearer will think of when someone else asks them who they know that lives like a Christian good thing to remember when you're tempted to blow your top <laughs> or let your hair down <clears throat> beyond good Christian behavior <laughs> good time to think of that do our actions really point to Jesus could we stand with John the Baptist well, no, probably not with him but at least we can wave his way <laughs> I suppose we could be both the one toward whom they're looking and the one telling them about Jesus after all John told his audience to repent and now to get back to our scripture Paul makes that connection that seems obvious once you say it but that many people don't get until we do say it brothers sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation if you're hearing the message you can tell people then God meant you to hear it (laughs) it's a real message from God that message that salvation that making everything right is that towards which all Paul has said is pointing there's another thing about God-fearers of all ages that must be dealt with they know there are charlatans out there hypocrites who say they believe who act like they're holy who play the religion game very well who don't really believe a word of it those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled them by condemning him these pseudo-believers hear the very word of God from those whom God sent to write it and they don't really hear it some of them were televangelists I mean priests (laughs) the big stars of the religious world of that time the rulers of the religious world and they don't just get it wrong they can become violent and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death they asked Pilate to have him executed there's an important element of the church that we need to not just admit but point out not everyone who is a member of the visible church is a member of the invisible church every name on every church membership list is also listed in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not everyone who attends church in this life is headed towards eternal life with God. We need to point that out. And that some of them are willing to execute those who oppose the way they believe religion should be carried out, including some who assume the title of pastor. Now I'm not talking about people who make mistakes god fears know everyone, but God makes mistakes. It's one thing to aim for the target and miss. It's a whole other thing to be aiming the other direction. <laughs> I'm talking about people who believe they get to decide where the target is. What is and isn't a mistake. They think they get to decide what is right and wrong, good and evil. They don't think God should tell them. Through the Bible or any other means. And certainly no messenger of his is allowed to have authority over them. They serve themselves. And even murder, even murder of the promised one, is acceptable to gain whatever they want. We need to admit to those God-fearers in our lives, who are seeking the truth, that this does in fact happen. And we need to point out that simply calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian have you ever noticed that no one counterfeits confederate money <laughs> what will be the point it's not worth anything well exactly but people try to counterfeit Christianity all the time why because it's really worth something <laughs> it's, it's valuable and you know the point For someone to simply call themselves Christian or use a lot of Christian words doesn't make them a Christian they are nominal Christians Christians in name only use the right words sing the right songs even do some of the right stuff but they don't believe of course there are also baby Christians and adolescent Christians and even grown up Christians who make mistakes we're not talking about them because they like David seek to do all God's will even when they mess up maybe especially when they mess up and if a God fearer pays attention they can eventually tell the difference Paul goes on. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. God fears understand that even when things look bad, God has a plan. Well, at least they get it when you say that. All that happened to Jesus was written down years, centuries before it took place. Even though it looked terrible, he was dead. It was God's plan. A person would have to be pretty blind not to see that this world is in trouble. Even an inveterate optimist like me could see it. But it's okay. Even when Jesus was in the tomb, God was in charge. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. This, you heard me say this before, is the central point of Christianity. (laughs) If we're not willing to say that Jesus was dead and buried and is now alive, we cannot give the message of salvation. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Don't miss the important point here. Paul had reported to them of eyewitness accounts. And now he goes back to scripture to support what he's saying. Three different scriptures. You see, god hearers believe in the miraculous things that can happen only if someone outside of nature, God, does something to make them happen. Obviously, someone coming back from the dead qualifies. But so does prophecy. And the vast number of miraculous predictions, centuries before, of things that happened to Jesus supports the claim of his resurrection. And Paul's use of Scripture reinforces the truth that God fears will listen to Scripture. Scripture and by saying he will not see corruption Paul is affirming the eternality of his promise for the promise of God that we can have eternal life is based on the eternality of Jesus' resurrection if he lives forever we can live forever if he does not then we cannot and amazingly God and fearers (laughs) get this at least they do once you point it out and recognize this important thing As great as David was, his body saw corruption. John the Baptist's body has decomposed. So have Muhammad's, Joseph Smith, and all the others who said that they were on the same level as Jesus. Jesus is the only one who rose from the dead and will never, ever see corruption. All those people who said that they were as good as Jesus were liars, and their graves prove it. We know where Muhammad's grave is. People can walk you to Joseph Smith's grave. How hard is this? I guess the God-fearers need a little more. What exactly is this promise, Paul? Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone honest with themselves will agree that they sin. In fact, they're saturated in sin. Their very nature, our very nature leads us to sin. Why do you think people say, sorry, I just lost it there? Well, you lost what? You lost control of ourselves. That's what we did. In other words, we acted like what we actually are. (laughs) We need to be something else. We need help to be something else that the Jews and the God-fearers knew that they weren't set free by sacrificing animals as Moses instructed. Sure, it would cover sin, but they needed to get rid of it. This sort of worship was only a sign that they believed the promise of God that one day they would be freed from their very nature. And Paul tells them, very clearly, that this man Jesus is the final answer. And no other is needed No other will do. God-fearers have this sneaking suspicion that unless you are perfect, you cannot see God. And you know what? They are correct. Because they understand God must be perfect. How can you stand before a perfect God when you are, so obviously, not perfect? Unless your imperfections are forgiven in Christ, you are lost. Only through Jesus are you freed from everything. Every evil deed, every evil thought, your very evil nature, everything. That's some good news. <laughs> god fears try to be honest with others and with themselves. They usually know they are grossly imperfect. matter how careful they are to keep whatever laws they think they need to keep. So they know their need. And they should know and understand the wonder of this good news once they hear it. But Paul doesn't stop there. Oh no. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look you scoffers, be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. They had listened with interest to every prophecy Paul had quoted. And now he mentions another. He's already shown them that many in Jerusalem with their leaders have fulfilled this sad prophecy. Why do God-fearers need this warning? John gave us a clear explanation. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. We're made to enjoy each other's praise, to receive glory from one another. We're supposed to have that. But if a God-fearer seeks that over what God has for them, then they may be lost. I think we need to be clear on both the promise and with the warning. And, if we are, we should see results similar to what Paul did so soon after Jesus did rise from the dead. as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. There are a lot of people in America, nine out of ten, who are God-fearers. Most don't have a clue what they believe. They don't know the claims of the Bible. But they're open to listening to them. They know that something about how God worked with the Jewish people relates to how he will work with us. They know that God's plan has and will take time. They know that there are usually those who don't get it right, followed by those who do. They have an inkling that God's plan includes sending someone who gets everything right and that Jesus might just be the one. We need to be clear with them that Jesus is the only one and any true messenger of his will quickly tell them just that. They understand that God is likely to try to communicate with us. And are willing to consider the Bible as his word. They also understand that some who claim to be messengers of God's are not. Those who think they make the rules, their ways lead to death. We need to assure them that God has a plan. And no matter how dark it looks, His plan is being carried out. The center of our message needs to be the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that Jesus will not, will never see corruption. Something which no one else can say. We can assure them that through Jesus, all their sins can be forgiven. They can be free. And we need to warn them that these beliefs are (laughs) non-negotiable. And if we do, I think we'll see just what Paul did. An excited group of God-fearers who want to learn more. And believers that we can encourage to continue in the grace God. We hope that you've enjoyed this message, first heard at Living Hope Church of Westport. If you'd like to support us so we can do more, well, you'll have to work at it. We have no one click button for giving on our webpage, southbeachhope.org. We are a tiny church in a small town and simply cannot afford either money or time to set up such a thing. But at least with our modern technology and with the help of sermon.net, we can share the good news with you and anyone around the world. Hopefully, we'll someday be able to worship God together in person, if not in Westport, at least in the rapture.